Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today, of course, with our world lead and new warnings about the rapidly deteriorating humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returned to Israel after meeting with multiple multiple allies uh, throughout the Middle East, uh, trying to get a humanitarian quarter opened for innocents to evacuate from Gaza before Israel ramps up its attacks on Hamas. Right now, Israel is pointing those civilians towards the southern gate into Egypt, what's known as the Rafah crossing, which at this point still appears to be closed. Video from this morning shows dozens of families, including babies, waiting next to locked gates. A U.S. government memo shows more than 250 U.S. citizens also in southern Gaza waiting for the Rafah crossing to open. Now, while earlier reports suggested that it was the Egyptian government refusing to open the gate, when I pressed the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on this issue yesterday, he blamed the closure on an altogether different group. The Egyptians have, in fact, agreed to allow Americans to depart to get safe passage through the Rafah crossing. The Israelis agreed to ensure that the area around there would be safe, as, at least as far as they were able to do so. The question when we tried to move a group yesterday was actually Hamas taking steps to try and stop that from happening. Trucks packed with aid for innocent civilians in Gaza are lined up in Egypt right now. They are waiting for the green light to go into Gaza. Gaza, where shelters are overcrowded, where there are shortages of food and water and fuel. That is because within Gaza, half a million people have fled to the south from the north in recent days after Israel's military urged civilians there to evacuate and announced its forces were preparing for the next stages of war. Let's start today with CNN's Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, you're in Ashkelon, which is just north of Gaza in Israel. What are you seeing? Well, Jake, today the U.N. is saying that essentially, quote, time is running out for the people of Gaza. The situation there getting more and more desperate by the minute. It has been nine days now that there has been no food, no medicine, no electricity, uh, despite uh, assurances from the IDF that the water had been switched on in the southern part of the enclave. We're hearing from the Palestinian Water Authority that there is still no water. I had been in touch for the past few days with a family in the northern part of Gaza. That's the area that was supposed to be evacuated. They were too fearful to leave their homes. They said they had nowhere to go. Today, I have been unable to get in touch with this family at all. Uh, My messages to them are not going through. And all of this happening despite the flurry and intensification of diplomatic efforts to try to get some form of relief moving across that Rafah crossing. You mentioned that Jake Sullivan had pointed the finger at Hamas. The Egyptians are now pointing the finger at the Israelis, saying that they are willing and ready to do this, but that they need some assurances from Israel that have not been forthcoming. The Europeans have said that they are ready to step in with an air bridge that they have uh, promised 
promised $79 million in aid to the people of Gaza. But once again, none of this aid can get to where it needs to go to. And the situation is increasingly dire. Continued strikes there. People in desperate need of medical attention. And still no sign uh, of any change on the horizon. Last night, as we were finishing a long day, it really looked positive that potentially that crossing would open in the morning, if only for a brief window to at least start the process of evacuating foreign nationals. The U.S. says they're tracking about 253 U.S. nationals currently trapped inside Gaza, but still no movement and no sign as to when we might see some, Jake. And today, uh, the IDF, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, they updated the number of people thought to be held hostage by Hamas. Uh, the number is now 199. And, and you spoke with the son of one of those kidnapping victims today. That's right. Uh, quite a few family members of the hostages have basically set up camp almost uh, outside the military headquarters in Tel Aviv. They're carrying signs. It's a form of holding vigil, but it's also a form of protest. A lot of anger uh, from many of these families at Israel's handling of this crisis and a lot of very real concern as well about what this ratcheting up of the violence in Gaza could portend for any kind of deal or for the possibility that their loved ones will be able to get out safely. What you hear from people uh, who you talk to over and over again is let's focus on prioritizing getting people out who are alive safely rather than taking vengeance for those who have already died. We spoke to uh, one uh, man who is the son of Vivian Silver. She is a 74-year-old peace activist uh, who is among those hostages. And her son, Yonatan Zaigan, who spent all morning on the phone with her as uh, the militants were near her house firing bullets, they said their goodbyes. And he really urged uh, the Israeli government to, to try to be somewhat restrained in their response. He believes that this endless cycle of violence can only lead to more violence. The issue is, though, when you talk more broadly to Israeli people, the drumbeat of, for war, the desire for, ve uh, for vengeance, the feeling of anguish and powerlessness and a desire to do something decisively to really cripple Hamas once and for all, that seems to be the dominant voice here on the streets of Israel, much more than those of these families of hostage members who we spoke to, Jake. All right, Clarissa Ward in Ashkelon, Israel, thanks so much. Plans to evacuate Americans from Israel are underway right now. This cruise ship, the Rhapsody of the Seas, left Israel and is currently en route to the island of Cyprus. The ship was chartered by the U.S. State Department to help ferry Americans out of Israel, departed earlier this afternoon. CNN's Sarah Seidner was in Haifa on the nor northwestern coast of Israel on the Mediterranean earlier today. Sarah, you spoke with several families who decided to evacuate. Tell us more. Yeah, it was quite interesting, actually, the juxtaposition where you're talking about what is happening in Gaza where people are trapped inside and what has happened with Americans who, you know, many of whom were pretty annoyed is, is probably the word to use, uh, that it has taken a, a bit of a long time for them to figure out how to get out 
of the country, the State Department stepping in, chartering that uh, massive cruise ship uh, from Royal Caribbean to take them to Cyprus. But as people were coming to the ship, the ship holds more than 2,000 people. There were only about two or 300 uh, people that, that actually ended up, I think, boarding that ship. But what you're seeing over and over and over again is almost all uh, of the people boarding that ship were families with children. There were a few people, uh, single folks who were getting on, but for the most part, it really was families with children. And the, the real thought there is that it is the kids who they are protecting. Um, but there is conflict uh, among the families as they were going towards the boat, uh, some of them discussing uh, whether or not they should be leaving, knowing that this is taking their kids to safety. And even some of the children themselves uh, didn't really feel like they should be leaving because they wanted to be here for the war effort. Let me let you take a listen to one family's dilemma. I don't agree with this trip. I came along because I want to be with my family, but I think that we should stay in Israel with our nation and with our family, and I think we have to show support. And if everybody picked up and left, not everybody would come back. And what are we fighting for? We're fighting for our country and for a home to call, a place to call home. If for some reason the borders are closed, we'll swim back. <laughs> you feel that strongly? Yeah. So, you know, there is uh, clearly they're coming back. This is a country that they now live in. They're American citizens. They've been here for some time. But that 14-year-old girl uh, speaking very eloquently about how she feels, but she, of course, going with her parents because she is a minor uh, back to the United States for a while. Every single family that we talked to said they would return to Israel when it was a bit more safe. Jake. What happens when they get to Cyprus? So it takes 10 hours. Uh, so that ship is uh currently in the Mediterranean Sea uh, as we speak. Once they get to Cyprus, uh, they are on their own. They have to find uh, ways to, to leave. Basically, there are flights that can take them out uh, to wherever it is they want to go, uh, whether it be in the United States or somewhere else. But at this point, um, they have left Israel. They are in uh, the waters. They are on their way to Cyprus. Uh, it, it, it should not take them too long with two or 300 people uh, to get to where they need to go. All right, Sarah Seidner in Tel Aviv, thank you so much. Right now in Gaza, hospitals are overfilling with patients as the critical need for medicine and food and water and fuel continues to grow increasingly dire. The United Nations says Gaza is being strangled by Israel's airstrikes, which the IDF insists are aimed at Hamas, but Palestinian officials say more than 2,800 people have been killed and that more than a quarter of them, more than a quarter, are children. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz has more on the worsening humanitarian crisis as thousands of Palestinians try, try to flee south. This is what life looks like in places Israel told families to flee towards for their safety, where constant bombardment has reduced homes to rubble and wiped out entire families, these survivors say. I lost all my relatives, 15 people, this man says. We were not on the front line or anything. We were just sitting at home. What have we done wrong? The UN warns there are no safe places. About half a million people fled here to southern Gaza after an evacuation order by the Israeli military. But families desperate for refuge are still trapped in the war zone. 
the dead and injured flooding a health care system on the brink. Civilians are caught in the crossfire, with the death toll mounting just over a quarter of those killed are children, according to Palestinian officials. And a week-long siege is strangling the enclave, the UN says, amid fears food, fuel, water and medical supplies may soon run out. Some two million people are crammed into this 140-square-mile territory, now many of them pushed into an even smaller corner of the enclave. About half the population are children. There are not enough shelters to house the sheer number of civilians, and even those who do find spaces in overwhelmed schools-turned-refugee centers, it is little comfort to the youngest victims. There is no one to protect us, this little girl says. There is no one to come save us. How are we supposed to live? How? Answer me. Prime Minister Netanyahu has vowed to annihilate Hamas after a terror attack by the group left 1,400 killed in Israel. But with Hamas so deeply embedded within Gaza's population, rights groups fear a bloodbath. What we're seeing right now, the direction that Israel is going to, they is going in, they have said they want to destroy Hamas, but their current trajectory is going to destroy Gaza. Hamas does not answer to the people of Gaza. No elections have been held here since the group seized power in 2007. Still, it is these residents that will pay the price. And with a potential ground incursion expected, that cost is unfathomable. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN, London. And our thanks to Salma Abdulaziz for that report. So many reasons are being given as to why aid cannot get into southern Gaza. And why American citizens stuck in Gaza cannot get out. What's the real story? I'm going to ask a top advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu next. Then, a six-year-old boy stabbed to death near Chicago. His mother severely injured. The latest on the suspect behind what authorities say is a sickening anti-Muslim hate crime. Stay with us. And we're back with senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Mark Regev. He's also the former Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Ambassador Regev. The New York Times is reporting that three senior Israeli officials say that the plan is to wipe out Hamas's top leadership in Gaza and to invade Gaza City. We haven't really heard what the plan is. We've seen a lot of airstrikes on Gaza. Can you confirm that that is the plan to wipe out Hamas's top leadership and to invade Gaza City with a ground force? Jake, you, of course, know that I'm not going to go into operational details of of military activities that are still ahead of us. I can only share the goal with you of the operation, which has been stated, and I'll state it again. We will dismantle Hamas's military machine and take apart its political governance in Gaza. We will destroy both the military wing of of Hamas, its military machine, its terrorist capabilities, and its governmental uh, activities, its governmental structure in Gaza. How many people is that, do you think? I can't go into numbers, (laughs) but it means that when this is over, Hamas will be incapable of launching the sort of horrendous attack that they did uh, uh, on October 7th. They will be physically incapable of launching such an operation. 
So uh, certainly taking out Hamas's leadership, I understand the, the point of that, but these, uh, the uh, Palestinian health ministry in Gaza says 2,800 Palestinians have been killed and, and uh, somewhere between a quarter and a third of them are, are children. Um, that's not Hamas's leadership. Can I please offer a word of caution? Now, I know that there is real suffering in Gaza. There's a war going on and and innocent people are getting caught up in a very difficult situation. I don't minimize that. But you have to take with a grain of salt any information that comes out of the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza. That has to be said. Hamas is not a democracy. There's not an independent health bureaucracy that is trying to do its best. Every doctor you speak to, every hospital director you speak to, works under the gun of Hamas. They are not independent. If they speak out of turn, they will pay a price. It's like speaking to a doctor in North Korea or a doctor in the former Soviet Union. They don't have independent opinions. They have to follow the party line, and if not, they they face violent consequences. So those numbers, they might be true, they might not be true. Hamas, of course, has an interest in exaggerating civilian yeah. casualties. So let's assume that you... And of course, Hamas doesn't say how many of them were combatants, of course. Correct. Right, right. So let's assume that you, you take out the Hamas leadership and their ability to uh, commit atrocities. Ambassador Herzog told me yesterday that Israel does not want to reoccupy Gaza after the mission is done. So what happens after Hamas is destroyed? Who, who would be in charge of Gaza? So, first of all, maybe almost anything would be better than Hamas. I mean, if there were illusions that Hamas had somehow moderated its position, that the responsibility of government uh, of being uh, ruling over 2.3 million people forces Hamas to be a more rational behavior, uh, uh, that was proven wrong. Uh, The violence the brutal, horrific violence that we saw on October 7th showed that to be wrong. This is a, 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 a hardcore, unreformed, extremist, murderous terrorist organization. And, and, and so you have to say, if it's like ISIS, how could it get much worse? So well, we have to hit it hard. Yeah. We, have to, we have to destroy its ability to attack us. And I've been in discussions where... Different contingencies have been discussed. What happens after? At this stage, I'm not at liberty to discuss those discussions, but I can assure you that Israel is thinking three steps ahead. Uh, uh, The most important thing now is that we focus on the total destruction of the Hamas military machine and the dismantling of its political uh, uh, structures. There's a new report in Haaretz that alleges senior officials in Prime Minister Netanyahu's office are barred from working with an Israeli defense ministry task force, which is focused on repairing infrastructure near Gaza, uh, because the defense task force is led by a staunch opponent of the Netanyahu judicial overhaul. Is that true? I have, I have not read that report, and I'm not familiar with any of that. I apologize. You've said that Israel is united right now, very united. Um, so far, Netanyahu has not been able to get opposition leader Yair Lapid to join the unity government. Um, what's going on there? Shouldn't Israel be as united as possible? Well, we've already united by bringing in one major opposition party. And as you know, they joined a few days ago, and we've now got a, a national emergency government 
where Mr. Gantz, who was a very severe critic of, of Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, uh, stepped in and said, in this time of crisis, uh, we, we have to unite to fight the common enemy. And, and I think if you look at the polling in Israel, that, that there's a wide support for, for that sort of move. It must be remembered, Jake, when, when they crossed the border on October 7th to murder us, they went to left-wing kibbutzim where, where people in their lives never voted for, for Netanyahu and they went to right-wing villages where everyone likes Netanyahu. They didn't care if Israelis are left-wing or right-wing, religious, secular, uh, what their political views are. They kill us because we're Israelis. They kill us because we are Jews. That, that, that the murderous uh, violence that we saw on uh, October 7th, that was the largest single act of anti-Semitic violence since 1945, since the terrible years of the Holocaust. We've yeah. never seen anything of that scale for, what is it? It's more than half a century. Yeah. Uh, and so I think for many Israelis, I mean, we will argue about politics just as you in America argue about politics, and we will do it very loudly and we'll do it very passionately. But ultimately, I think these attacks by Hamas, to a certain extent, were a slap on the face. We have to understand that we Israelis have a common destiny. We have a common uh, 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 situation that we are all together in facing these terrible and horrific challenges. Yeah. Mark, Mark Regev, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. A horrible story in the United States. A six-year-old boy viciously stabbed to death. He was laid to rest today outside Chicago. Coming up next, a closer look at the allegations of anti-Muslim hate connected with his gruesome killing. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. An awful, horrible story out of Illinois today in LaGrange, just outside Chicago. Wadia Al-Fayoumi, a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy who was senselessly stabbed to death 26 times, was laid to rest today. Police say... He and his mother were attacked on Saturday by their landlord, allegedly because they were Muslim. CNN's Whitney Wilde has more on this horrific attack that's now being investigated as a federal hate crime. Allahu Akbar. Six-year-old Wadia Al-Fayoum, a Palestinian-American, laid to rest today. He's a very kind kid. He likes to jump up and down. When he was dead... He was last words to his mom. Mom, I'm fine. You know what? He is fine. He's in a better place. 
The boy died after he and his mother, Hanan Shaheen, were allegedly stabbed Saturday in the room they rented from 71-year-old Joseph Zuba, just outside Chicago. Their landlord, in an act of hate, shouted the threats and unleashed violence. The landlord appearing in court today while the boy's mother remains hospitalized, recovering from more than a dozen stab wounds. Zuba allegedly entered the room he rented to Shaheen and her son Saturday morning, stabbing the six-year-old 26 times. Uh, the female's claiming that the landlord has the child in another room and apparently is either stabbing or has stabbed the child. Authorities have now opened a federal hate crimes investigation. The local sheriff saying in a statement, both victims in this brutal attack were targeted by the suspect due to them being Muslim and the ongoing Middle Eastern conflict involving Hamas and the Israelis. Outrage erupting over the brutal crime, illustrating why federal officials are worried about growing threats. He paid the price for the atmosphere of hate. Zuba now facing murder, attempted murder and hate crime charges. All right, they have you. Jake, that mother is still in the hospital and illustrating just how gut-wrenching this is. Again, she's still in the hospital, and that meant she could not be here at the funeral. Jake, she could not say goodbye to her little boy. Back to you. So awful. Point me wild. Thank you so much. I want to bring in uh, Rula Jabral. She's a visiting professor at the University of Miami, a journalist, a foreign policy analyst, and an Israeli-Palestinian who's lo- who has loved ones both in Israel and in East Jerusalem uh, right now. Uh, Rula, uh, Thanks so much. How important do you think it is for people in the media, for our political leaders, for religious leaders, to make this incredibly important distinction between Hamas and not only the Palestinian people, um, but Arabs and Muslims and, and all other people who, who somehow might unfairly and, and wrongly be, be lumped in with Hamas? I think it's crucial. It's, it's, it's paramount. I mean, as we see the rise of hate crimes in America, as we see death threats in Michigan, in Brooklyn, restaurants are receiving death threats, restaurants of of Syrians, Palestinians, Muslims, it doesn't matter. But it starts with the dehumanization, Jake. It starts with with the language of officials, both in Israel and sadly in the United States, where they blurry the distinction, they erase the distinction between civilians and militants. And they carry this narrative that uh, Palestinians are animals, are Nazis, that the only way somehow uh, the solution for this conflict to wipe them out, to exterminate them. I mean, I've been listening to many in the media, and if we ever needed Palestinian voices to actually explain how did we get here and how we where we go from here it's now if we ever needed rational thinking i understand the fear the emotions i understand that what you know and i have empathy and, and compassion for the civilians who died after the attack in the same time we need because of those emotions because we've been there before after 9-11 we've seen what happened when we overreact we've seen what happened when we dehumanize and criminalize an entire group of people it actually reminds me of when after 9-11 in in the you know in the preparation for the war war on iraq a lot of americans thought that the iraqis were responsible for 9-11 yeah and that led to the invasion and led to building up of the lie about wmd and like there's you know there's a threat of extinction we need to go there and with that and now they regret these policies 
And I remember also officials in the Bush administration coming out and saying, our policies are creating more extremists and more terrorists. But also, I remember Barack Obama saying, you know, ISIS was the direct outgrowth of al-Qaeda and it's related to our invasion and occupation of Iraq. I mean, I remember these things and it seemed we didn't learn enough. And I think Palestinians are also invited to defend their humanity and defend their existence over and again instead of explaining. And they've been telling us and warning us that this is going to happen without a political solution. They've been telling us, Palestinian and Israeli Palestinians telling us that there is no military solution. That the, and if there's a confirmation of the failure of the military approach is five wars in Gaza, right. then endless crimes and endless you know, subjugation to the Palestinians without a political solution on the horizon. This war will not stop in Israel. It will not. And what happened in Gaza in these days, it will not keep Israel safe, but will come back to America. And it is astonishing that the same people who waged a war on America's democracy are the same people who today telling us wiped out, wipe out Gaza, the same people who endorse what Putin did in Chechnya, basically, you know, flatten Grozny or what Assad did in yeah. Aleppo. Nobody is safe with this policy. And no Israelis, no Palestinians, and no Americans. And, and I think and one of the things you're saying there is so important, the idea that when this war operation, whatever people want to call it, when it's over, the idea that the West or the Arab world or whomever can just say, okay, now we're just going to go back to the way we were, and the Palestinians in the West Bank and the Palestinians in Gaza are just going to be left to their own devices as they were before, and like that is not like that's not a solution. No, that's actually why we are here in the first place. And I know that it's hard in this moment of high emotions to to appeal to other people humanity. But if we ever need an international law for the protection of the people and to prevent an ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, it's now. If we ever need it to pressure governments to speak up to the Israelis and tell them that, you know, you are the strongest army in the Middle East. You are the 11th strongest army in the world. You have atomic bombs. This is, yes, it's horrific, but it's not an existential threat. And not, Palestinians are not Nazi, Nazis. We need to have our media, our colleagues, our friends to, to you know, pressure also and rebuke and, and counter the narrative of, you know, the military, the army who are telling us that no, there, there's no civilians. There are civilians. There are millions of people who live in Gaza. They're regular human beings. And today we hear their calls from hospitals, from on the ground, who are telling us that they fear to be exterminated. They fear that. And, with, and not only us who are hearing them, the whole region, the whole world are listening to that. And I think in this moment that... We shouldn't wait for a military, you know, to conclude whatever they are doing. And we mm -hmm. know what they're doing because in their deeds and words are telling us what they're doing. Yeah. But we need now to pressure as international community Israelis to act lawfully, to we act rationally. More than ever, we need that now. Don't wait. Because Rula, if we wait, it's going to be too late. Rula, before you go, I, I know you have um, relatives in East Jerusalem and in Israel. And I'm wondering... Um, how it is uh, for 
Palestinian Israelis uh, right now um, in, in this incredibly awful period after that incredibly awful October 7th attack and now this war. How are your relatives doing? Thank you for asking, Jake. Um, you know, some of my relatives work uh, in hospitals. They're taking care of these injured who were attacked in October while listening to, uh, you know, basically other Israelis calling to exterminate Palestinians, to wipe them out. Many of them change the way they dress because they are they fear retaliation. Many of my of these relatives who talk to people in Gaza, in hospitals working in Gaza, and they hear the voices and voice messages telling, you know, basically telling them, we are waiting to be slaughtered. We know that the world doesn't care about us. We are waiting to be slaughtered. And, and, and also, you know, while all this happens, the attacks in the West Bank never ceased. 55 Palestinians in the West Bank where Hamas is not there, been killed last week. In seven days, they've been killed. The attacks of the settlers, and while the government is, you know, the military are doing what they're doing in Gaza, in the same time, they're building settlement and continue to confiscate land. People in Jerusalem are terrified because ministers in Israel and politicians, including the moderate president, are telling them there's no civilian, and they're repeating the narrative, Palestinians are Nazis. And injecting this narrative to basically say, we, you all are enemy, and so we will go after you sooner or later. And you have, you know, ministers like Ben Gvir and Smutrich, and that's why yeah. they are appealing to the international community to pressure this government that is, to uh, stop any kind of retaliation that can, you know, lead to a regional yeah. wider conflict, but also lead to a position where Israel themselves, they ask themselves what American did after the war on terror. Are we producing more extremists? Yeah. Are we plunging ourselves in a forever war? Those lessons from the global war on terror, the lessons from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq need, need, to, be, need to be remembered. Uh, Rula Jabral, always, always great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. It is the personal stories that bring the horrors of this war home. Um, we hear from a man desperate to learn more about the fate of his girlfriend who was taken hostage, kidnapped by Hamas. And that story's next. Moments ago, a spokesman for Hamas, which the U.S. classifies as a terrorist group, said that the group is holding at least 200 to 250 hostages. This is after the group's horrific terrorist attacks on Israel. We should note CNN cannot independently verify those numbers. Israel said earlier today that they thought Hamas had 199 hostages. Some of the hostages were kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival, where at least 260 others were murdered by Hamas, making it the worst civilian massacre in the history of Israel. 27-year-old Inbar Hyman was volunteering at the festival and was taken hostage. Inbar's boyfriend, Noam Malone, joins me now. Noam, thank you so much for being with you. I'm so sorry that it's under these circumstances. When did you learn that your girlfriend was missing, and, and what have you learned about what, what happened to her um, that day? So, uh, uh, since uh, Saturday morning, uh, it uh, took me really minutes to understand that she's on a festival that uh, attacked uh, by uh, Hamas, and it took us uh, 
In a few days, uh, we got uh, testimonials of the two guys who were with her in the moment that she was kidnapped. And there is also a video that was posted, was published by Hamas uh, and in Bar, uh, shown in this video taken by uh, four terrorists. They are holding her and taking her to, to Gaza. So Hamas has posted this video of your girlfriend. You've said it's, it's too difficult for you to watch it. Um, have any of your family or friends watched it? Have any of them described what they saw, her condition, anything they've learned? Yeah. What, what did they tell you? Yeah, they, they, as you said, they, my mother and my father, they preferred me not to watch it uh, because it's possible to see uh, her face, like they put an emoji on her face, so it's not uh, really easy to, to see her face, but for one frame, uh, it's possible to see her face. And it seems like she got hurt in her face. And uh, it's not really uh, uh, possible to understand if she is in conscience or perhaps uh, they hit her uh, uh, to take her without any resist. And uh, from the video, we can learn that she is like taken to Gaza when she's alive. Uh, they wouldn't uh, hold her if she weren't alive, of course. You can see hundreds of People was murdered there, and they didn't take anybody. So uh, we know that she was taken by them. And as you said, this video is is not easy to watch, but uh, we, we we are looking on the positive uh, side of the video that is showing us that she was taken and she's there as a hostage and that she's uh, alive. I know Inbar is an artist, um, and the community of artists is is using art to help get her story attention. Tell me more about that effort. Yes, yeah, so Inbar is uh, well known as a graffiti and a street art artist uh, in Israel. And all of the graffiti and street art community uh, are doing a lot of efforts uh, to spread her story, to get more attention to, to the fact that she was kidnapped. And in these days, uh, many graffiti artists and muralists are making uh, uh, lots of hours in the street uh, connecting to Inbar. Uh, they are writing uh, uh, free Inbar, they are writing uh, free pink. Pink was her uh, tag, her nickname for graffiti. Uh, and she was very known for it. And in these days, all this community and me as well as in her boyfriend and also in a I'm a graffiti and a street art artist by myself, so we are doing everything we can as a community to uh, to give more attention to her story, hopefully to help to bring her back. Well, I hope you get her back soon. Noah Malone, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. We'll be right back. In our politics lead on Thursday, when asked if she would support Congressman Jim Jordan for speaker, Congresswoman Ann Wagner said, quote, hell no. Today, Congresswoman Hell No Wagner came out in support of Jim Jordan for speaker. This seems to be a common theme with many of the folks who held principled positions opposing Jim Jordan for speaker. Jordan, whom former Congresswoman Liz Cheney says was deeply involved in Trump's conspiracy to steal the election. They seem to be losing those principles over the weekend, at least. CNN's Melanie Zanona is on Capitol Hill for us. Melanie, where does Jordan stand now? Can he get to 217? 
Well, Jim Jordan is inching closer to the speakership. He made some notable progress today and has flipped several key holdouts. In addition to Ann Wagner, he has also won the support from two defense hawks who were previously skeptical of Jim Jordan's foreign policy views and also won the support of some other allies of Steve Scalise, who had to drop out of the race last week. But it's interesting because in their explanations, Jake, for why they're supporting Jim Jordan, it's not because they think he's the best candidate for the job. It's because they simply just want to be team players and to end the chaos that has reigned on the House floor. But Jim Jordan still has some work to do. There are over a dozen holdouts at this point by our count. He can only lose four Republicans on the floor, but he is vowing to take this fight to the floor no matter what tomorrow and going to grind down his opposition on the House floor, a very similar strategy to what Kevin McCarthy did in January. But there's also been an intense conservative grassroots campaign trying to pressure these House Republicans to fall in line. We should know a little bit more, though, at 630 when House Republicans meet for another conference meeting and We'll see where things stand after that, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona, thanks so much. Just into the lead, the Pentagon is preparing for the possible deployment of U.S. troops to support Israel. What we're learning about those plans and what that exactly means next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Israel's leaders are preparing for the next stage of their war against Hamas. They say it's a likely ground invasion of Gaza. And while Israel's military has not officially announced that its soldiers will invade Gaza, three senior Israeli military officials have told The New York Times that the goal will be to wipe out Hamas's top military and political hierarchy and capture Gaza City. An incredibly risky ground invasion will likely feature bloody street-by-street urban combat made much more difficult by Hamas's underground, miles-long network of deep tunnels. Still, thousands of Israeli troops are preparing near Israel's border with Gaza. Once and if the Israeli military moves in, the United Nations warns further conflict could spiral into a, quote, abyss in the Middle East as that conflict spills over borders. A fear echoed today by Iran's foreign minister who says regional war could soon be, quote, unavoidable. To Gaza's north, Israel's military is exchanging fire with the Lebanese group Hezbollah, which the U.S. considers to be a terrorist group. There, Israel has ordered the evacuation of 28 villages, and Hezbollah, like Hamas, is backed by the Iranian government. And it may, quote, respond to an invasion of Gaza by opening up a second front with Israel along the Lebanese border, according to the New York Times. To the south, Egypt's border with Gaza, the Rafah crossing is the only way for civilians to get out of Gaza, but that has been sealed off since Hamas's brutal terrorist attack on Israel two Saturdays ago. Egyptian officials say it is Israel's fault that the crossing is closed, since Israel's government has not agreed to a ceasefire in Gaza or free-flowing aid. Egypt's conditions to open the Rafah crossing. In addition, Israel has not fixed the extensive damage caused by one of its airstrikes near the gate, according to the Palestinian officials there. 
As the humanitarian crisis in southern Gaza becomes more dire by the hour, the, uh, the United States and Israel blame the bottleneck at the Rafah crossing on Hamas. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians listened to Israel's call over the weekend to immediately evacuate from the north, likely in preparation for its ground offensive, as food, fuel, water, electricity, even body bags run in short supply, according to Palestinian officials and aid groups. While the suffering among Palestinians and Israelis is abundantly clear, what is unclear as of now is what the plan is by the Israeli government and the Israeli military if they do seize Gaza City, and how the world will ultimately respond. Let's bring in CNN's Aaron Burnett, who is live for us in Tel Aviv. Aaron, we have seen rockets flying over Tel Aviv tonight. Does it feel as though the next phase of this war, this, this ground incursion, is about to start? Jake, I mean, you use the word feel. It's the right word, certainly uh, from Israelis that you know we've been speaking to that you know I, I interact with. Uh, there is sort of... There's, there is now, there had been a recognition, uh, resignation, as I said to you, but now it's palpable. They believe it is imminent. Uh, they believe it is ready. There is a nervousness and a fear. This is the first time when someone in our crew went into a grocery store that the stores were, uh, the shelves were empty. That had not been the case. Uh, so just when you talk about people's reaction and people's fear, we are starting to see that now in a different way. Now, again, that's anecdotal. That's what we've been interacting with. But in terms of the rockets that you talk about, we have here in Tel Aviv had more rockets come in today than any other day over the past week that I've been here. Uh, There have been several volleys just over these past four or five hours, um, maybe nine or 11. sort of didn't didn't count exactly as they came in rockets over those times. So we've heard the sirens. That's happened. So more today than any other day down in the south. I was at an Israeli military base today, Jake. Obviously, rockets there near Ashkelon, and that base was busy. That was a base uh, at war. Uh, pallets and mats, thousands of them where people were sleeping. Uh, there, there's no question that this is going into something much bigger, Jake. And at least, again, anecdotally, the feeling is, is, is that moment is quickly coming. And Aaron, you visited one of the kibbutzim devastated by Hamas uh, during the invasion, during the terrorist attack last weekend. Tell us what you saw. Well, Jake, um, these are horrible places now. Uh, They're places places of death. Um, The smell of death is there, and it's something that is sort of unmistakable as a human being. When you smell it, you taste it, it's there, it's death. Children's toys strewn about uh, everywhere, bullet holes in almost every single home. Um, You know, we'd see like playing cards, kids' homework strewn everywhere. Al-Qassam Brigade, Arabic graffiti, victory is ours, Allah Akbar uh, on the side of houses, and and also, Jake, still an active zone, right? They've still been clearing houses um, in, in Bayri and others of Hamas fighters who had hidden. They're also, they talking to soldiers today who've been accumulating some of the weapons, they're still finding Hamas fighters in, you know, convoys of jeeps that, that, that they had killed, their bodies now rotting, um, this smell is pervasive, and the destruction of human life is completely pervasive. But it is sometimes the most simple things, the days of the week medicine that is completely melted from the fire in a house um, that stands out to you, um, that, that it is truly incomprehensible to walk through places like this. And, and honestly, in some senses, Jake, we feel like trespassers, and we're trying to see it, understand it, document it. But the people who may know people in those homes or be related to them, 
they haven't been allowed back to even see their own family homes. Uh, but these are places of a great crime. Yeah, a crime scene, indeed. Aaron Burnett in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. CNN's Nick Robertson uh, is near the Israel-Gaza border for us. And Nick, you've been watching the military build up uh, for days now. Are there any indications that you can discern uh, of, of any action, of any imminence? You know, it, I think there may come a point, Jake, where it's hard to discern uh, what is action right along the, the line of contact, the front line, the fence, if you will, at the moment. And when does that actually become an incursion? We've become used to uh, all the missile strikes and artillery strikes on, on Gaza, and they are literally going on since your show came on the air. We've counted about half a dozen, and they keep coming. Some of the flashes behind me are big, and the explosion, cap- we hear it very quickly, which means probably just a mile or a couple of miles away. There are others where you see the flash and it takes a lot longer, 20 seconds, to hear the explosion. And and perhaps those are maybe a Gaza city about seven and a half, eight miles away, perhaps a little bit beyond there. Um, But, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, we heard what sounded like an Apache gunship firing heavy machine gun fire along the the fence line uh, behind us in the distance behind us. We haven't heard it like that before. We haven't heard that before. So this, this is what I mean. It sort of gets hard to discern. There's a, blur, there's a blurring of the line. I, I, I guess the ultimate line, obviously, isn't it, is, is when the line is actually breached and crossed. And trying to get a sense of that, there's a greater sense of readiness. There's a very strong sense of willingness and desire to do it and a level of apprehension uh, and a high degree of training. We've seen that over the past couple of days. But actually being able to say to you right now, do I think it's going to be tonight? Do I think it's going to be tomorrow or the day after? Just can't tell. And maybe this confrontation with Hamas is slightly different because of the issue of the negotiations. That was another detonation explosion there. And, And because of the issue of hostages potentially as well. One of the one of the obstacles, um, that's the wrong word. Uh, one, if I were an Israeli soldier right now, one of the things I'd be most terrified of if I were going in there is this vast system of tunnels that Hamas has under Gaza uh, that can be used for hiding weapons, staging ambushes, holding hostages. It's really a, almost like a city of tunnels. Um, how are the Israelis preparing for that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I talked to one of the soldiers, Special Forces, was one of the first to cross the line back in 2014, and he spoke to that issue. You just do know, do not know what to expect. I mean, because of the tunnel system, Hamas can pop fighters up in front of you or behind you when you think you've cleared a building, they come out of a tunnel behind you. So it really is nerve-wracking. But what Israel has been has become better attuned to is detecting where the tunnels are by by monitoring sounds from within the ground but also they have deeper more penetrating munitions and i think we've been hearing some of those that are really that sort of pause on their explosion until the until the rocket the missile is deeper in the ground and then it explodes with a bigger force, a bigger explosive force. So I think that those are a couple of the ways, but it's obviously key to know the, the mapping. And we know there have been intelligence failures uh, that have led to the current, current situation. So, yes, it, it's going to be a, a big concern that there are, the tunnels are a threat. 
There are some answers Israeli is the IDF has, but not all of them. Yeah. Nick Robertson in Israel. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. With us now is a spokesman for the Israeli Defense Forces, Lieutenant jo- uh, Colonel Jonathan Conricus. Um, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, let me start right there uh, with the obvious intelligence failures, tragic, tragic ones uh, that you and I have discussed before. Um, how worried are you uh, about the Hamas network of tunnels in Gaza, uh, which would seem to be a big black hole about which the IDF knows so little? You know, we're looking at the situation and assessing what Hamas tried to achieve by the brutal attack on uh, October 7th. And we must assume that Hamas planned for this stage as well. And since that is the working assumption, then of course we have to draw the necessary conclusions and act accordingly when our troops are on the ground. Uh, we have to be use the, all the tools that we have available and others in order to uh, flush those terrorists out or kill them where they are. Uh, and again, getting to the aim of ridding the Gaza Strip of Hamas and making sure that never again will such an attack happen on Israelis from Gaza. So Israel, the IDF appears to be on the brink of invading northern Gaza. Um, earlier, Mark Regev, an advisor to the prime minister, told me that the goal is to uh, just eliminate um, all of Hamas's uh, military leadership, political leadership, and also just uh, all of Hamas's uh, government. Um, Is that the goal? Yeah, the goal is, I mean, Yahya Sinwar and all of his lieutenants and everybody else who is part of Hamas, who supports the uh, operation, the terrorist attack that uh, they executed uh, before, uh, they are dead men walking, everybody. If they do logistics or if they do administration or if they just uh, launder money that they get from Iran or whatever their job is, if they're a member of Hamas, they have a very dire fate that awaits them, either to die or to be or to surrender. That is uh, the fate that they have. Those are the options. And we are going to dismantle Hamas, its military capabilities. And as I said, make sure that this never happens again. The IDF today raised the number of hostages um, being held by Hamas from 155 to 199. Hamas claims the number is higher, somewhere between 200 and 250. No matter what the actual number is, um, the former Hamas leader claims the group has enough hostages, including high-ranking officers from the IDF's Gaza division, to win the release of thousands of Palestinian prisoners uh, held in Israeli jails. Are you aware of any discussions about any kind of uh, a prisoner swap or, or prisoners on the, on, the, on the Israeli side, hostages on the Hamas side, any sort of exchange? Not at all. And I think that the uh, former current terrorist, former official of uh, Hamas will be very disappointed when the dust settles, when the Israeli hostages are back home and when Hamas is dismantled. How are you going to get them home? It doesn't seem as though right now that's the priority in Gaza. It seems as though the the military campaign is the priority. We have two very important tasks. They are intertwined and they influence each other, both uh, dismantling Hamas and, of course, getting our people back. 
Uh, I'm not going to elaborate about the tension between them and what will have precedent at what stages and what will be more important. I can only say that both of them will be achieved. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan uh, Conricus, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Coming up, a new phase in Israel's deadly war against Hamas uh, as it prepares to expand its operations in Gaza. CNN got exclusive access on the ground. And the U.S. is bolstering its military presence in the Middle East. And now we're learning the Pentagon is preparing for the possible deployment of U.S. troops. More on that next. Breaking news, a U.S. Marine Rapid Response Force made up of 2,000 Marines and sailors is heading to the waters near Israel, according to a Pentagon official. Let's get straight to CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon Force. Oren, tell us more. Jake, we've been watching this Marine Rapid Response Force, the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. It has been in the region and has been uh, there as part of its normal operations, but we've been watching to see if it heads towards Israel, and now a U.S. defense official familiar with the plans says it is, in fact, headed that way. The 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, or MU, is currently in the Gulf of Oman on board the USS Bataan, an amphibious assault ship that will make its way towards the waters off the coast of Israel. It's unclear if it'll join the other ships that are already there or if it'll stay in the Red Sea off the coast of southern Israel. That, perhaps, more likely. But it, uh, it adds to a growing list of U.S. military capabilities that are heading towards this region and this conflict, even as the Biden administration says it's trying to avoid direct involvement in any way in the fighting between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. The USS Gerald R. Ford carrier strike group is already in the waters off the Eastern Med, and another carrier strike group led by the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower is headed that way and should be there in a couple of weeks. So, Jake, a tremendous uh, amount of U.S. military force here getting very close to a hot war. And Oren, we're also learning uh, that the Pentagon is preparing another 2,000 U.S. troops who might actually be deployed inside Israel? This, according to multiple U.S. defense officials, last night, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered 2,000 troops to prepare for the possibility of deployment. So not quite there yet, but this would be likely to Israel for support roles, whether that's logistics or support or medical assistance. But that possibility is is very much on the table right now as Austin looking at that possibility and has ordered the military essentially to give him options here in the event that he makes that decision and issues a prepare to deploy order. One of the officials says that normally troops are on something like a, a 96 hour uh, get ready for deployment. That has been shortened as the Pentagon watches uh, the, the fighting unfold. All right, Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. While the world is focused on the horrors of the Hamas terrorist attack and now Israel's uh, response strikes uh, to Gaza, there are growing fears that this war could expand to new fronts. CNN's Matthew Chance got exclusive access to Israeli defense forces in the north of Israel as they ready for a potential major fight with Hezbollah on Israel's border with Lebanon. They're bracing for a dangerous second front. But we gain exclusive access to Israel's tense northern frontier. Well, the Israeli army have now sealed off as a security zone some of the areas close to the Lebanese border because of the threat being posed. But they're, they're taking us now um, to the closest period, the closest place they can do that they say is safe to see the lay of the land. That land is hostile. None of the Israeli soldiers here wanted their faces shown to hide their identities from Hezbollah. 
the powerful Lebanese militia with a vast arsenal trained on these positions from across the border. We're ready. If they choose to come, they'll make a huge mistake. War with Hezbollah would be brutal, said this senior Israeli commander, who asked not to be identified. But it is now also necessary, he told me. Do you believe there will be a second front open here, or are you hopeful still that Hezbollah will stay out of this war? I hope there will be another front. We need to destroy Hezbollah. You, th you hope there will be another front? Yes. You want the war? Yes. Why? What Hamas did in Gaza, it didn't come from nowhere. It came from Hezbollah, it came from Iran. And in order for us to stop what happened from Hamas, we need to stop them also. All right, well, this is as close as the Israeli military say we can go. Just across there is territory of Lebanon controlled by Hezbollah, the Lebanese uh, militia. And Israeli soldiers in this position in Israel uh, tell us that over the past few days, there have been multiple attempts by Hezbollah fighters to penetrate the fence and to come into Israel, but they've been fought back. If there is going to be a second front in this war in Israel, the likelihood is it's going to start here. Already there have been exchanges of fire, forcing local Israelis to flee, terrified what happened in Israel's south could happen here too. A terrorist attack at this scale has never yeah. happened and I'm yeah. scared that I live on the border. Yeah. What's to stop them from doing it here? And I want to be strong and I want to come back and live here, but, but I need to think about my kids first. Back from the border, Israel is bolstering its forces with some of the 360,000 troops mobilized after the Hamas attacks last week. If war in the north is coming, Israel seems ready, even bristling to fight. Well, Jake, over the past several hours, there have been exchanges of rocket fire and artillery guns across the, the border between Israel and, and Lebanon. But the truth is both sides are holding back as much as they can from a full-scale conflict. Uh, Israeli officials say if Hezbollah does not intervene in Israel's conflict, then they will not react. Back to you. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. There is undeniably a growing sense of, of anger, of fury in Israel over the fact that intelligence and political leaders were caught so off guard by the Hamas terrorist attacks. In just a moment, I'm going to speak with the CNN correspondent who was in Israel the day of the horrible terrorist attacks. And we'll ask her about the political fallout. Stay with us. Today, the head of Israel's domestic security took full responsibility for the Hamas attack as frustration grows in that country over potential intelligence failures before the brutal assault. Uh, I want to bring in Hadas Gold, CNN's Jerusalem correspondent, who is here with me now uh, in studio here in D.C. Um, so Israel's prime minister has vowed a thorough review of the potential intelligence failures. I don't know why I'm calling them potential. They're, they were clearly intelligence failures. Um, I want to just show you something. Eyal Waldman, a, a billionaire tech executive who lost his 24-year-old daughter, Danielle, um, when she was murdered by Hamas at the Nova Music Festival, he posted, uh, that's Danielle right there, he posted this image uh, on his Instagram. Uh, it's Netanyahu with a bloody hand over his face uh, and said, 
uh, that uh, as long as he's in office, both sides are going to suffer in this conflict. Now, look, obviously Hamas is responsible for the, for the murders. Um, but there are a lot of Israelis uh, that are really mad at Netanyahu. Obviously, right now there's a lot of rallying around the government, rallying around uh, in opposition of Hamas. But, but how mad do you think people are, are when you know, the dust settles are going to be at Netanyahu? I think there will be a huge amount of anger and there will be a big amount of sort of the blame game, not only of the intelligence failure, but also there's a bit of anger about just how long it took elements of the security establishment, the military, the police to get to the people yeah, who were literally calling in to Israeli television channels, pleading for help on air live, that it took them that long to reach them. So there will be a lot of inter- you know, retrospective trying to figure out what went wrong. I've already heard from some Israelis blaming the Israeli government that they were so wrapped up in the judicial overhaul over the last nine months that they were ignoring the security issues. We've also heard from some parents of those who've gone missing who said this government was just trying to manage the conflict, you know, try to keep a, a lid on it as much as possible, give these work permits for Gazans and thinking that would help, uh, you know, uh, that would keep Hamas happy essentially and not get them involved. But right now there is definitely a sense that the country needs to come together, that they're all supporting the Israeli military. This is not the time to necessarily for the huge blame games on the Israeli media. You're not seeing these big roundtables of people trying to figure out who's to blame, who's, to, who's at fault, because the focus right now is, of course, the war and getting these hostages out. I have also heard uh, people saying that one of the other problems is that the uh, IDF, the Israeli mil- military, was positioned in the West Bank protecting all these right-wing settlers um, who are provoking a lot of violence themselves instead of Uh, position throughout the country. Is there any truth to that? Well, I mean, the West Bank has been essentially on fire now for a year and a half. There's been an increase not only of individual attacks, Palestinian attacks on Israelis, but also of Israeli raids within the West Bank uh, targeting militant groups there. So there's definitely a bigger presence there. And the sense I got up until Saturday was that everyone assumed that Hamas wanted to keep Gaza quiet because they enjoyed seeing the occupied West Bank burn. So Hamas was sort of like, they're okay. They've got their work permits. They're going to be chill. Nothing was really that, you know, I was talking to officials up until just a few days before. There was no indication that Hamas had any interest in getting involved. And potentially that was the downfall. Let's go back to that exchange with Matthew Chance and the IDF soldier who said he is hoping for the war to expand to the north because Hezbollah and Iran pose the same threat to the state of Israel as Hamas does. From your reporting, is this a widely held view among Israelis? I don't know if it's widely held because a war with Hezbollah is going to be like a war with the varsity team. And right now, the war with Hamas is a JV team. Hezbollah's arsenal, tens of thousands of some of them are precision guided missiles that could, you know, directly hit a power station or something like that. And so while some might say, let's just get it done with now. Again, war with Hezbollah, a totally different type of war than what we're seeing with Hamas right now. And so while some in the security establishment might say, let's just get it done now all at the same time, we already have all these reservists up. I'm sure for the, for the average Israeli, they'd rather wait on that. All right, that's gold. Good luck with the baby. Thank you. My next guest wants the world to see the video Hamas posted of his nephew who was taken hostage. That story next. Almog Mayer went to the Nova Music Festival in Israel to celebrate a, a big job he was about to start. But on 7.45, Saturday morning in Israel, he called his mom to say that the party had stopped because there was shooting all over. He said that he would update her with, with more information and that he loved her. But that was his last phone call to her. He was abducted and kidnapped by Hamas. Aviram Mayer and Orit Mayer, thank you so much for being here. Aviram 
Can you can you tell us about your nephew and and, and what happened to him? My nephew went to a party at a Friday evening uh, with a friend. He arrived at uh, uh, the party and he had an all-night party. In the morning, he understood in some way uh, he had been shot and he, he has been, they, they have sent rockets on him. So he understood that he had to run away. And he tried to do it. Not before he called his mother. Uh, after he called his mother, if you may, if I can continue, he entered the car, uh, the car with his friend that he came with from Tel Aviv. To the car entered two sisters, and they tried to leave the place. After uh, 50 meters, about. The shooting has stopped, has stopped the car, and all the passengers try to get away. The two sisters have been announced dead yesterday, mm. and the driver named Tomer has been announced murdered a few minutes ago. Mm. Almog... I've been kidnapped, as you know. We had a video clip from the Hamas that he released at the Saturday the 7th at about uh, half past 12. And there we can see uh, five guys about, Israeli guys, not friends, kidnapped, who have been beaten, have been tied up, and was Friday, frightened. And yeah. Mog was one of them. I know you want people to see that, that video. Why, why do you want people to see it? The cruelty. We want. And the, we want to. And the way of thinking, the way of thinking that there were 3,000 youngsters who went to a party. And this is how ended the party. And Mog, my nephew, Went to party in a in went to party in a party in a festival. This is all he did, and all the others did the same. The results Im- impossible to think about the results. Orit, I can't imagine. I I just can't. I don't have the words to imagine how stressful this must be to wait and wait and wait for any any information and and have to wonder. How he's doing? Is he still okay? How, how is your family? It's a big shock for everyone. Uh, I, you can't imagine how I suffer. You can't imagine. My life is over. I feel that my life, my life is over. It's like, it's like all in my heart and everyone in my family, we, we don't know how, what, what, what to do. We, we decided that we want that everyone knows about our story. It gives me power, my son, to go to everywhere I can to talk about it and that everyone knows how they behave to 
to what can I say? It's like it's so hard for me that he is there. That he is, is kidnapped. And I'm so I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to think what is going on, what is pass, pass, is, is passing. It's, <laughs> I wish I had words to console you. I want you. my son back. I want him back. I know. Home. I know. I know. I ask international community to bring Almog and all the hostages home. Today, it's what I want now. <laughs> I, I, I think there's nothing else to say. Bring the hostages home now. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. That is the message, and that is the only sane, the only sane thing to say. Bring the hostages home now. Aviram Mayor and Orit Mayor. Thank you so much, and um, and we will be thinking, thinking, and, and praying, thinking and praying, and hoping that that happens. Thank you very much. Thank you. House Republicans are currently meeting behind closed doors, um, debating who will be their next speaker. The big question: Has Jim Jordan won over enough critics? I'm going to talk to one lawmaker considered a key vote. A senior Republican aide told CNN that Fox's Sean Hannity is apparently trying to pressure moderate Republicans or at least wavering Republicans to support Congressman Jim Jordan in his bid for speakership with a Hannity producer emailing aides for certain congressmen asking, quote, Hannity would like to know why during a war breaking out between Israel and Hamas with the war in Ukraine, with the wide open borders, with a budget that's unfinished, Why would Representative X be against Representative Jim Jordan for speaker? Please let us know when Representative X plans on opening the People's House so work can be done, unquote. The email was first reported by Axios. This comes as several key votes uh, flipped over the weekend from opposing Jordan's bid for speaker. Hell no, said Congresswoman Ann Wagner, to supporting him. Okay, I'll vote for him says Ann Wagner now. With me now, Republican Congressman Mike Lawler from New York. Congressman Lawler, the House floor vote is scheduled for tomorrow at noon. How are you going to vote on Jim Jordan? Uh, My intention is to vote for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I have said uh, from the very beginning uh, that he never should have been removed uh, and that I believe he should be uh, Speaker of the House. I think he's the right person to lead us. Uh, When I met with uh, Congressman Jordan on Friday evening, uh, I said to him uh, that I am not a hell no, but uh, unless you have the votes, I, you know, I'm not going to be there. And the reason I say that is this. At the end of the day, we need to get back to the work of the American people. We need to get the House opened up again. Uh, Unfortunately, eight of my colleagues teamed up with 208 Democrats to remove Speaker McCarthy and shut down the House uh, going on two weeks. Uh, So it is imperative that we get back to work uh, for the American people. Uh, But 
I, I still have a fundamental problem uh, with the fact uh, that you have a handful of people uh, who have refused uh, to work with the rest of the conference. Uh, they unceremoniously removed the speaker. They blocked Steve Scalise, and now they want everybody to fall in line. Uh, and they're using every pressure tactic they know uh, to try and, and pressure members. And I think that the challenge here uh, is, at the end of the day, regardless of who the speaker is, we need to be able to govern, and we need to be able to govern as a conference. And if we can't do that, then you don't have a majority. And that really is the fundamental issue here. You know, you come from a district that President Biden won. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, and uh, I don't have a difficult time imagining uh, a Democratic opponent running an entire ad if you voted for Jim Jordan, pointing out that you voted for a guy who was a conspirator to overturn the election. And I know that there are other Republicans in districts that Joe Biden won that would also face TV ads along those lines. Is that not a big problem for Republicans? Look, uh, the DCCC and uh, Hakeem Jeffries and my uh, potential opponent, Mondaire Jones, they're going to attack me no matter what I do, no matter what I say. Uh, that's, that's their job. That's their objective. They want to get back in, in the majority. Uh, my constituents know who I am. They know how, where I stand on these issues. They know uh, what I have said and what I have done. Uh, and I fought uh, to make sure that we lifted the debt ceiling. I fought to make sure the government stayed open. I have been working uh, nonstop to address the challenges facing the American people, from spending uh, to the border uh, to the crisis in Ukraine and Israel. Uh, and I will continue to do that. So I'm not, frankly, too concerned about uh, what uh, prospective opponent's going to say, because, frankly, they're going to attack me no matter what I do. Um, you brought up Israel, and I know you wanted to say something uh, about the crisis in the Middle East. And I'm also wondering uh, how concerned you are about the fact that uh, we don't have a speaker. The United States does not have a speaker at this time when there are two wars going on and Congress can't even pass a symbolic resolution against Hamas, much less uh, if there were to be an aid package needed. Look, this is precisely why we never should have removed the speaker in the first place. Uh, you never know what will happen uh, on the world stage. And obviously, we need to get back to work as expeditiously as possible to uh, provide uh, financial support uh, to Israel. Uh, we need to have a supplemental aid package to help with things like the Iron Dome. Uh, and the administration needs to continue to stand shoulder to shoulder uh, with Israel. The pressure is going to mount uh, as Israel defends itself. Uh, and people are going to be calling for ceasefires, as some of my colleagues have, uh, which is wrong. Uh, Israel is the victim here, not Hamas. Uh, and, you know, the Palestinian people living in Gaza have been living under Hamas's oppression. Uh, Israel is not the oppressor, and people need to get... Uh, that straight in their head. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, uh, we need to get back to work. We need to support Israel. Uh, there can be no daylight between us because the pressure around the world is going to build uh, on Israel, and we need to stand firm. Republican Congressman uh, Mike Lawler from New York, thanks so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, a small bit of good news from a family in Israel who you saw here on the lead last week. They were desperately trying to get out. We have an update we want to share.
Finally, before we go, on Friday, we shared with you the story of Jessica Nagar Zandani, an American living in southern Israel. You might remember her three adorable little kids who were being so brave, Benny, Gabby, and Zoe. They were in and out of bomb shelters all, all week. During the interview, she told us she was having a lot of trouble getting information from the U.S. State Department on when to evacuate and how. We are very happy to share some rare good news with you in the last nine days. Jessica and her kids safely evacuated and got on a flight the next day, Saturday morning. So many of you we know uh, watching feel compelled to help in any way you can with humanitarian relief efforts. CNN has been compiling resources. You can head to CNN.com impact. You'll find a list of vetted organizations on the ground responding. That's CNN.com impact to help any of these uh, poor kids in Gaza, in Israel. Please go and check it out. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.